The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. I hope you all had a great weekend, and um, I'm, I think you're going to really enjoy our show today. We're going to be talking about the adolescent mind, and it's really important for everyone to know that a lot of, or most, of the research done in the treatment of mental illness or substance use disorders has, has been done on adults, and then it somehow gets tweaked for adolescents and children. And we know that their brains are different. We know that the brain is still developing in adolescence. And um, I'm very excited to introduce to you our guest today. Her name is Dr. Elizabeth Wassenaar, and she is the staff psychiatrist for the Lindner Center of Hope located in Ohio. Uh, she works closely with the New Adolescent Comprehensive Diagnostic and Intensive Treatment Program, also the Harold Shot Eating Disorders Program, and in the outpatient department. Um, she is triple board certified um, in pediatrics, adult psychiatry, and child and adolescent psychiatry. Dr. Wassenaar completed her residency training at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center and University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, thank you, Dr. Wassenaar, for uh, spending this hour with us. Thanks, Mary. I'm really excited. Um, could you explain to our listeners a little bit about um, the adolescent brain and, and what what is happening to, to our brains in adolescence? What's going on? Yeah, absolutely. So adolescence is just a time of, a, of tremendous change and growth. And adolescence is typically defined as the onset of puberty until age 18. And it's the time period that bridges childhood and adulthood. And so the, the goals of adolescence are really um, multidimensional, and the brain and the body are going through an immense amount of change during this time. Um, and so when we, when we understand um, adolescents both in mental health and in mental illness, we're looking at something that really is a, a unique entity. So when we think about the way that the body changes during adolescence, um, you know, the whole hormonal milieu within the body changes. You can see this um, when you see how adolescents grow, and uh, they certainly are undergoing a time of immense growth spurts. Um, but also um, their sexual development is changing inside. Um, I think it's important to recognize that um, that uh, there's a lot of research going on that indicates that puberty is beginning earlier and earlier, and that uh, creates a, a real time of um, of uncertainty when a younger person is beginning the uh, internal changes of adolescence, but maybe their emotional development is not keeping up with that. 
So does that mean that adolescence is actually spanning a longer period of time? You know, it does in a lot of ways means mean that adolescence is a longer period of time than it had been in previous generations. And um, the time period is really a bit of a fluctuating time period. And one of the ways that we help to define it is not just based on the chronologic age, but also the emotional and developmental tasks of adolescence. And those are the sorts of things that um, I think are undergoing a lot of understanding right now as we try to really get inside the adolescent mind, put our own selves back inside of our minds when we were that age, to see what it is that we need to accomplish in order to get from childhood to adulthood in a successful way. And what are some of those developmental tasks that we have to undergo? Absolutely. So one of them certainly, as I've previously mentioned, is um, adjusting to sexual maturation. The body changes um, is a really big one. That's one that parents often have a little bit of squeamishness when it comes to having those conversations, Um, but that it's an important thing to talk to your adolescent about. Um, The brain changes in the way that it thinks. So one of the big changes is the way that uh, adolescents are able to use critical thinking skills and able to abstract in ways that they were not able to before. So they use those skills in thinking about things in a larger context. Um, They can use that abstraction to also think about relationships. So they have the ability for the first time in their life to really see relationships from a three-dimensional perspective, see themselves within the relationship, see the other person's point of view. Um, This allows them to build empathy and to resolve conflicts in different ways. Um, I think think that adolescence can also be um, a time of uh, real emotional turmoil as well for for, for some people, they have a very stormy adolescence, and other people seem to be able to cruise through it. Absolutely. That's exactly right, uh, Mary. And, you know, one of the tasks of adolescence is to develop and apply new coping skills. So uh, adolescents are learning for the first time about um, the multi-layers that they have in coping with things, and it absolutely does affect different teenagers differently. And I think that that's something that can be understood in a broader context of who each teenager is, what kind of um, environment they're in, what their stressors are, and then also getting back to the way that their brain is made up and the way that they are built in terms of their ability to be resilient or handle change or um, react to things in a way that um, is more peaceful or if they are a, a child that's just more sensitive to those sorts of things. So um, we know, can you explain a little bit about what actually is changing in the brain? Is mm-hmm. what's, are we adding um, more neurons? Are we, what's actually happening? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, it's really an interesting topic. Um, in the old days, we used to just look at the size of the brain and people said, well, the brain reaches an, it's an adult, it's adult size by 90% by age five. So that must be, mean that, The changes are done by the time someone reaches five years old. But we know now that internally the adolescent brain is undergoing a time of intense remodeling through pruning, which means cutting back ineffective neurons, increased connections, so the the parts of the brain that are supposed to be working in in conjunction with with each other get stronger, and also increased myelination. Myelination is the insulation of the brain, so it's the... It's the material that surrounds the neurons to allow 
the electrical impulses to travel more efficiently. Um, And so all of these things are going on inside the brain that cause uh, some of these developmental tasks and challenges that we see on the outside. Uh, More specifically, when we look at the parts of the brain that change, the uh, medial temporal lobe is where a lot of the emotional changes are taking place. So the amygdala and the hippocampus are involved in emotion and memory, and they really increase in volume throughout adolescence. And so when we think about the emotional brain of an adolescent, it is actually growing. They are actually developing new connections within that part of their brain The other thing that's interesting about that part of the brain is that their emotional memory is also developing. So one of the ways we talk about learning is we talk about emotional learning, the ability to learn from a situation and not repeat something um, in an emotional sense, for instance, in a conflict or with a a challenge, an emotional challenge. This is the part of the brain that helps negotiate that particular skill set. So you can really see a difference from early adolescence until late adolescence and adulthood, and that's how it should be. Now, what role do the, uh, we know that there are hormonal surges as well that occur during this time. What role do, does that play with um, increasing hormonal activity? And Yeah. So, you know, um, hormones are, are so um, integrated into the experience of what it feels like inside your body. Um, And so when the body is developing and and adolescence onsets and and various hormones begin to surge, um, people really do feel things more intensely. And that's something that is um, part of the adolescent experience is that they have uh, just a lot of changes in their hormones, which triggers a more easily aroused experience of the world, um, both in excitement and joy and anger and frustration and in sexual arousal. And they uh, will often, you know, as they negotiate these new sensations, have trouble regulating that. So that can be a learning experience in and of itself is how to react when your body feels a certain way. What advice would you give to a parent who may be listening who's experiencing um, the, the, the evolving brain and the surge in hormones? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that the first, Step is to educate yourself as a parent about what's going on. Um, your child is going to be, uh, this is going to sneak up on them. So for you as a parent to sort of have at least a large, you know, broad sense of the roadmap of what's going to happen, there's going to be a lot of changes, they're going to catch everyone by surprise, so that you can help normalize this for the adolescent. I think that these things are made much worse when it feels like no one knows what's going on. Um, And then the second thing is to really Uh, you know, use that information, use that education that you've gained to help educate your child. This is a change that's happening in your body. We all go through it. Um, You know, mom and dad went through it, and this is is some of the things that we use to deal with it. Um, You may, during this time period, need to uh, take more frequent breaks or um, have other people help you recognize your emotions. And what are some ways that we can work together as a family to help you with this time period? I think it is difficult, though, because um, this is also a time of increased modesty as adolescents become aware of the changes in their bodies. And so creating an open dialogue before adolescence begins really helps um, pave the pathway of 
of this ongoing discussion and problem solving when it comes to these sorts of issues. You know, there's, there's just so much going on for the adolescent brain in, in kind of a, a healthy kind of progression of mm-hmm. um, childhood, adolescence into um, adulthood. Mm-hmm. And um, what happens when, because oftentimes there are certain mental illnesses that will begin to show symptoms or signs during this time. And what part does um, adolescence play in maybe triggering someone's uh, predisposition for mental illness? Well, that's such a great question, Mary, and adolescence is absolutely a time when we see a lot of mental illness present itself. In fact, looking at some of the epidemiologic studies that have been done, it's been noticed that up to half of all lifetime cases of mental illness have started by age 14, and 75% have presented by age 24. So that doesn't necessarily mean that half of the 14-year-olds are walking around with a mental health diagnosis, but it means that the symptom of their disease is there by early and mid-adolescence. And some of the things that really do trigger this um, are some of the changes that we've talked about. So these, the hormonal changes can trigger a bit of, a bit, a lot of instability um, inside someone. And as we talked about previously, if um, based on temperament, the ability to be resilient to those sorts of um, unsettling feelings can really create um, an environment where a child either responds with sort of sailing through it or becoming more troubled or tripped up by it. Um, you know, the other thing that, that I've mentioned is the pruning that happens in adolescence. So one of the things that happens in the brain, um, the brain is a highly efficient uh, organ in our body. And if there are things in the brain that aren't working the way they're supposed to, then the body goes ahead and, and gets rid of those things because the brain uses a lot of energy. Um, in mental illness, one of the things that seems to be happening is that there can be an over pruning of neurons that are not effective. And um, we'll continue this conversation right after this commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. How many times have you heard this? I'm sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. You are what you eat. I've tried every diet. Diets don't work. It's time to stop this kind of madness and start thinking and feeling empowered to change your health. Tune in to The Raw Truth with Chef Sharon Fraser. Join us weekly for thought-provoking conversations with world-renowned experts in the food, medical, holistic, sports medicine, chiropractic, and naturopathic health sciences. The Raw Truth airs live every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. 
out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Wassenaar, who is a staff psychiatrist at the Lindner Center of Hope in Ohio, and she's also a researcher. She has participated in studies conducted by the University of Pennsylvania and Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She's also published in the current psychiatry and is a member of the American Association of Pediatrics, American Association of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and the American Psychiatric Association. So, Dr. Wessenar, when before we went to break, you were talking about pruning, and mm-hmm. um, you weren't able to finish your thoughts. So, absolutely, would you like to do that? Thanks, Mary. Yeah, I will. I just wanted to sort of say that, um, you know, one of those, those big changes that happens in adolescence is that the brain cuts back the parts of it that aren't working well. And in mental illness, um, there are a higher proportion of neurons that aren't working well. And that's the reason why um, adolescence is a big time for mental illness to present itself, especially the more serious um, mood disorders and psychotic disorders, because the um, connections essentially are thinned out enough that uh, something like a serious mental illness can present. So um, are there other changes that occur in addition to pruning? Absolutely. Um, one of the sort of buzzwords in, in the popular press right now when it comes to talking about executive function is the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Um, and it is the part of the brain that helps us with uh, understanding complex relationships and executive function. So executive dysfunction is, is labeled as not being able to get it together. And um, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex um, develops during adolescence and becomes much more robust towards the end of adolescence. Um, It's really important in guiding and planning as well as moderating uh, impulses and judgment. This part of the brain actually um, trails behind the emotional areas of the brain, um, and so it's not surprising for parents of adolescents to see this play out in a day-by-day way that the child is much able to much more emotionally reactive than executively reactive or planning and guiding and making a good decision based on the future consequences. I think probably every parent knows the phrase, please make a good decision. Um, And that part of the brain is still developing. So it's understandable why there might be some struggles as it comes to making those sorts of, of decisions in adolescence. So um, how do you know as a parent what's normal um, kind of, you know, the ups and downs of normal development and when some of these things might be of more concern? Yeah. 
I think that's such an important question. And so when we look at the tasks of adolescents, you know, it really is developing these critical thinking skills, um, working with relationships in a different way, understanding complex emotional experiences. Part of the way adolescents figure themselves out in the world is to renegotiate a lot. And a lot of parents have experienced this renegotiation um, around everything, rules and curfew and things like that. And all of those are, are supposed to be moving the child towards adulthood. So when you think about what you want your child to be when they grow up, you think about them wanting, you wanting them to be able to incorporate those sorts of things. So mental illness really is when the pathologic distress or the things not working out the way they're supposed to do not promote development and actually may cause um, a developmental stuckness or even a regression. So some of these same tasks when they are associated with mental illness are actually creating um, a situation where a child's not moving forward through a task but instead getting stuck on it. Um, So, for instance, if we think about... um, trying to understand a more complex emotional experience. If, if, a, if a child gets really, you know, trying to, trying to understand their own emotions and, and trying to get a sense of what's going on, but they just keep getting stuck on it. So they're not able to ask for help appropriately. They're not able to integrate, um, you know, emotional experience in an appropriate way. That's more of something that is cause for concern. And really when you... Uh, start to look at the ways that this plays out in adolescence. It plays out in the things that we use as markers of success. So we often look at our kids and say, you know, we want them to do well in school. We want them to have good relationships. We want them to stay safe and make good decisions when it comes to substance use, staying away from substances that can lead them off track. And so when these things are inverted, when their grades suffer, when their relationships suffer, when they use substances in a way that's um, maladaptive and as a, as a maladaptive coping mechanism or in a way to take them away from bad feelings, that's where um, mental illness is starting to really uh, burgeon and is is a place where you want to make an intervention. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about some of the unique challenges that some children face, whether it's bullying or um, issues around sexual identity. Mm -hmm. And they're so vulnerable at this time, but it also can be a time where they have probably more... um, stress than at other times of their life if they are being bullied or they're going through, um, if they're coming out or doing other types of um, identity issues. Um, And it seems like it's the time when they're most ill-prepared to deal with all of this. That's exactly right. It is, it is such a difficult time. You know, um, you're, your brain and your body kind of catapult you into this this stage of development, and um, it feels very dangerous as an adolescent. You're you're disconnected from things that you were connected to before, just by the the nature of the time of your life. Um, and it is a very vulnerable time. Um, it is a time when your brain is first really able to start wrestling with these questions of who am I? How do I make all this stuff fit together? And especially when it doesn't look like the world that you live in, how do you negotiate that? What if there's this thing inside you that you haven't seen before? If you're a gay adolescent and you live in a place where you don't know any gay adults and and you're trying to figure out how does this work? How do I fit into this world? Um, It is a very vulnerable time. And the flip side of that is that um, 
the social structure of adolescence is a sort of uh, keep in line, stay with the pack, um, go along and get along. And so when someone is different, um, adolescents, you know, just based on their developmental phase will tend to create that sort of situation where someone is bullied or left out. So it is an important thing to be sensitive to as a parent um, or as an adult in, a, in an adolescent's life to help them with those feelings, both as someone who's being left out and someone who's leaving someone out. Those are um, two sides of, of the same coin that need an important conversation um, because I think loneliness is really one of the cruxes of mental illness and um, it's, mental illness is so isolating and um, is, an, is the thing that makes adolescents feel so different from everyone else that it's important to, to keep your eyes open for that and have lots of conversations. Be, be available. What does a, a mood disorder look like in an adolescent compared to an adolescent who's maybe having hormonal surges? How do you differentiate you know, I think it really comes down to um, the intensity of it, and this is where having um, an, a mental health professional involved is going to be an important step. Um, if when it's just within your family, it, it can feel very intense. Whatever the intensity of it is of it, it feels very intense. Um, so having someone who can be an objective third party um, get all of the information and help you look at the patterns of things. Uh, is going to be one of the ways to, to help with understanding it. But certainly, um, you know, adolescents with mood disorders typically um, have these swings and have these behaviors that are, um, you know, just turned up from other adolescents. And it's something that really affects their ability to maintain relationships, um, not only in the depressive phase, but if they happen to be on the manic side, it can really be alienating to their friends. And they're very aware of it, but also somewhat out of control to stop it. And so um, that, that's, those are some of the clues that I pull when I um, meet with families and try to understand what's going on in terms of a diagnosis. What about psycho- psychosis? Because in, in young men, this is usually the time that starts mm-hmm. to become um, more, I don't know, uh, noticeable. And in women, young women, it's later. That's right, so. yeah. You know, and we don't have a good explanation for why men present before women, but that's absolutely true, Mary. It does um, come with men earlier, and that late high school, early college phase is just the time when the adolescent brain, especially the male adolescent brain, seems especially vulnerable. Um, You know, this is a difficult one because it can hide uh, and people struggle with psychosis and with bipolar disorder for years without a a diagnosis that is the correct diagnosis. Um, You know, I think that you know, again, you want to create the sort of environment where you can have difficult conversations. And if if you can't as a parent, if there's something that makes it difficult for you, um, you know, even if it's just that, you know, parenting this child is very difficult, um, having someone else that can have those sorts of that open communication is really an important thing. Um, psychosis oftentimes you know, it, it, in its very nature, it doesn't make sense. That is, that's the crux of it. It's, it's not a linear thought process. And so um, it can be something that you, you need to be um, 
open-minded to. And this is where, again, having good qualified mental health workers involved when if you have these sorts of serious concerns is, is very important because some of these things, you know, they can really come out of left field, the, the thoughts that go along with the psychotic disorder. Um, oftentimes, it first presents with something that can look very much like depression, um, sort of a withdrawal from the things that somebody used to like or a, um, just a flattening of affect. And so it can be mistaken and fly under the radar. Um, and so, you know, if, if you have a suspicion that there's something going on that just doesn't fit with depression or seems odd or seems off, you know, that's a time to ask for help as a parent and make sure that you have um, a good qualified person who is meeting with your child individually and helping them to say what's going on inside of their head. I think it's also important for people to know, too, that you should also um, rule out any type of substance use, whether it's spice or pot or even alcohol that um, could trigger somebody's um, uh, bizarre thoughts. And and we'll be right back after this commercial to talk um, more about the adolescent brain. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. How is your health? Do you want to know more about it? Every day there are new technologies, procedures, and healing techniques coming forward. To understand them, tune in to Speaking of Health with Dr. Michael Cudlis. Our guests come from different backgrounds in the fields of health and healing. We'll discuss new realities and modalities, from chiropractic to metagenics. It's all designed to improve your quality of life. Speaking of Health is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our show today is on the adolescent mind. And our guest is Dr. Elizabeth Wassenaar, who has been educating us on all kinds of things um, that go on um, both in the body and the brain of an adolescent. And um, 
you know, uh, it's it's such a dynamic time for for everyone, and um, certainly ruling. We were talking about substance use before we went to break. Uh, in terms of when you see a child behaving strangely or um, in a way that um, makes you think, oh, there might be something going on. I know I always tell parents, always kind of rule out substance use first, and I wondered what you thought of that. Mary, that's exactly right. You know, substance use is something that absolutely can mimic um, a lot of more serious mental illnesses and certainly makes diagnosis very difficult. And so one of the the tenets of um, diagnosing a a primary you know, mental illness like a like mood disorder or psychotic disorder is that it's not under the influence of substances. And so when substances are on board, they very much complicate the picture. Um, it's a difficult time because, uh, you know, we've talked about sort of the social pressures of adolescents and one of the ways that adolescents express their um, newfound independence is with risk-taking. Some of that is appropriate because we need them to take risks in order to grow up, um, but some of it becomes inappropriate and we often see that with substance use. Um, in addition, their brains at this time are very susceptible to the effects of the substances that they use. And, you know, we are really beginning to understand a lot more of the ways that substance use in adolescence may have really long-term effects on the brain. Um, and um, especially with such easy access to marijuana um, right now, we are really seeing that uh, it definitely affects the brain's ability to continue growing um, and developing in the trajectory that uh, it had been. So um, substances are a very important issue in adolescence. I think something else that uh, deserves to be said as well is that oftentimes when adolescents are in a great deal of emotional distress, substances are one of the few things that helps them feel better. And so it is uh, a really important conversation to have as parents um, between you know, whoever's parenting your child um, and um, the child about what what are your views on substance use um, and how are you going to communicate this? So thinking about um, your own experiences with it and what sorts of things have been helpful for you to avoid using substances in a way that's maladaptive. Um, talking about the risks of addiction, um, but also the risks of how substances might get in the way of some of the long-term goals of your teenager, um, college, jobs, um, you know, things like that, um, relationships. And, and so, you know, talking about how substances can really wreak havoc on that, I think it's a really important thing to do, as well as talking about what can you use instead of substances. And if someone is having um, enough emotional distress that something um, that is illegal is their only relief, then that is absolutely a time that you want to make sure you're getting um, a qualified mental health professional involved and having some very serious conversations about what's going on inside your child's head. I think sometimes people, um, adolescents will also use food as a way to cope, either by um, bulimic, you know, overeating and then purging, or by not eating as trying to be in control as well. You're absolutely right, Mary. Uh, gosh, it comes out in so many different ways, um, the ways, maladaptive ways of dealing with emotional distress. And eating is certainly um, a hot issue right now. Um, we, we've studied um, anorexia and bulimia, uh, nervosa for a long time, um, but 
struggled with effective treatments for them. They're very difficult diseases to treat. Binge eating disorder is another um, diagnosis that's new for the DSM-5, um, but really represents someone that uses food in a maladaptive way and loses control. And I think that those people especially have a hard time being seen within, um, you know, mental health uh, venues and with seeing your primary care doctor. There's a, there's a lot of shame around losing control when you're eating and around obesity. And so certainly food is something that people can use in a way that is very maladaptive. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because I think everything has two sides and even sometimes schoolwork or, you know, things that we, we want for our children can become maladaptive. So, you know, whenever you um, can see your child taking something and making it something that tortures them rather than is a developmental goal for them, that's a time when something's really going wrong. And it can look all sorts of different ways. It could look like football. It could look like drama club. Or it could look like marijuana. You know, it can look like a lot of different things. And if the underlying drive is to towards emotional distress or to deal with emotional distress, then that's not healthy. And that's not what we want for our children as they grow up. Or they're so busy, they don't have time to deal with any emotional distress. Oh, gosh, you're so right about other. that, Mary. We put a lot off, don't we? Yeah. And we yeah. as parents have to be careful not to model that. Right, right. What's the rate of trauma in adolescence? Is there well, that's a good no. question, you know, and I, I am not sure of the exact numbers as well as, you know, I think that there are, are so many different kinds of trauma um, and um, in terms of the, the traumatic experiences of, of growing up and um, dealing with a lot of the losses and the abuse and things like that, I don't have specific numbers for you, but it is certainly much more than we recognize. Um, and I think the other thing that's important is that, um, like you mentioned early, earlier, Mary, different kids are going to react to things differently. So for one child, and, you know, this is getting away from some of the more significant trauma, traumatic events that I think everyone could recognize as traumatic, but for some children, the birth of a younger sibling is traumatizing, and they have difficulty recovering from that, Um, whereas other children, you know, might have something very significant happen, a divorce or, um, you know, something, a house fire, something traumatic, and they just roll with it. They're okay. And so, you know, trauma, even even in in its place, has some um, understanding within the temperament of the child to see how it, it affects them. You know, kids can be very resilient, too. I mean, um, it's sometimes it amazes me how um, they can take things in stride and bounce back. And then when you get to adolescence, that, um, that wonderful uh, resilience sometimes gets masked or it just, it does, I don't know that it fades away, but we seem to lose touch with it. Yeah, you know, I think it's just such a vulnerable time that the things that give us resilience are the sort of um, feelings that, that we're confident, that we can handle it, that we have some sense of invincibility. Interesting because a lot of uh, adolescents appear invincible, but inside that, that emotional invincibility, they, they don't feel it. Um, it. It's a bit, 
you know, like they have a foundation, and especially when you see a resilient child, um, they have a good foundation, but now they have to grow, and that growing period is stressful and uncertain, and it's, you know, when you're in the middle of it, you're not sure if you're going to get to that next milestone because you're right in the middle of it. And so looking from the outside, someone may say, well, you know, they're, they're a resilient child. They have lots of things going for them. They're going to be okay. They're going to get through this. But when you're the adolescent and you're in the middle of it, you're not so sure and no one can really reassure you. You just have to do it. Um, However, uh, you know, this is where that tension is of how much stress is too much stress? How much can my child handle? Um, and when is it too much? And I think, you know, again, those, that frequent checking, frequent checking in with your child, having good, honest conversations about, you know, what's really going on inside of them, um, practicing uh, being, uh, you know, as, as little shocked as you can because kids do like to shock us as parents. That's one of their, um, their ways of testing out the world is to create some shockwaves around them. But, you know, letting them know that you as a parent, you are a strong um, resilience for them, that some of that external resilience allows them to grow into it. Have we made progress in the treatment of adolescents um, in the di- diagnosing of adolescent mental illness? Um, yeah. Being away from the adult model? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that we absolutely have. Um, it, it was it, it, just to be able to recognize that there's so much of adolescence that previously has been pathologized and in an adult would be mental illness, but in adolescence is a normal part of growing up. So, you know, some of this risk-taking behavior in adolescence in an adult might not be appropriate, but in an adolescent, this is part of what they need to go through in order to grow up. So having um, the knowledge of what an adolescent is, what this time period of life is, is an important step in helping us understand when things go wrong. Of course, you can't tell what's going right, uh, or you can't tell what's going wrong until you know what's going right. So the first thing is is that we have to figure out what's going right, and then we can use that to build on what's going wrong. So from a developmental perspective, we have a huge amount of knowledge that we're gaining. From the way the brain develops, we're gaining a huge amount of knowledge, and we are in the infancy yet of, of being able to use things like a brain scan or um, a uh, blood test to, de- to detect um, certain things like depression or a mood disorder or a um, you know temperamental sort of ability to be more resilient. But I think that that science is coming. Um, you know, here at the Lindner Center, we're currently involved in a, um, a nationwide um, project to collect. Uh, genetic markers for bipolar disorder and this sort of these sort of projects are popping up all over the world because we're recognizing that mental illness is really a combination of genetic factors and environmental stressors and putting those together is complicated but I think that we're very much in the process of being able to understand that better than we ever have before so well what's the best way, I guess, for parents to proceed if they're, if they're concerned? Do they go to their pediatrician? No. Do they contact no. a mental health worker? What's the best way? Such a good question. So I think that um, treatment for um, adolescents really has two goals. Um, the first is to keep 
your child safe. So the number one goal is that um, in the environment the child's in, they need to be safe. So most children are able to be safe at home. And um, then the next step is to work on figuring out what's going on. And um, from figuring out what's going on, I think, can take on a number of different um, people can look at it a number of different ways. I think starting with a pediatrician. And we'll be right back after this commercial to, um, for good advice on how to proceed when you think your child may have um, some symptoms of mental illness. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan and Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and today we're discussing the adolescent mind with Dr. Elizabeth Wassenaar, who is a step psychiatrist at the Lindner Center of Hope. Um, before we went to commercial, you were kind of giving us a little how to um, proceed if we thought um, we were concerned about a child's um, behavior or questioning whether they had a mental illness. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think that it is so important. Um, to both figure out what's really going on. And as we've spoken about today, the adolescent period is such a complex period of time. And so um, incorporating your mental health professionals um, and your um, your uh, adolescent professionals is going to be such an important thing to help you as a parent know where to start. Um, the first thing when it comes to treatment is making sure that your child is safe. And so what we want to do before we undertake any sort of diagnostic workup is 
make sure the child is in the least restrictive environment to keep them safe. And, and by that, I mean that if they're not able to keep themselves safe at home because of intense emotional distress, then that's when you want to start looking at um, do they need to be hospitalized for a bit of time in order to keep themselves safe. Um, we want to do these sort of diagnostic workups in the most natural environment we can because I think that gives us the best bit of information. Um, however, because of the complexity with mental illness and physical illness and the way that all of these things overlap, and especially when there might be mental illness in the extended family or there are um, other situations going on where it makes it very difficult to get down to what's really going on, um, sometimes you really need to look at a different sort of diagnostic option. And one thing that we do at the Lindner Center of Hope um, is a novel diagnostic uh, module where we um, admit uh, adolescents for a short period of time for 21 days to do a really comprehensive diagnosis. And what we do during that time period is we do a, um, I do a, a full psychiatric workup. We do a full neuropsychiatric workup, including um, intellectual functioning and personality measures. We do a school evaluation and see about their learning styles. And we do a family diagnosis. So we take a look at what's going on with the way that the family works together. And then we put all of those pieces together um, using um, some state of the science um, things that we have access to here at the Lindner Center to help the family go forward. And um, I think that, you know, what you want to do is make sure that you're accessing all of the resources that you can for your child because it is such a critical period. And Making the right intervention um, helps you to set the stage for what uh, mental health will look like as we go forward. You know, when you're just getting started with this process, I think it's absolutely appropriate to talk to your pediatrician, to talk to uh, local therapists, your clergy, your school counselor, things like that. And for the majority of mental illness, it's, it, you can handle it in that sort of environment where you um, access your local specialists. Um, but when things get more complex, that's when you need to start thinking outside the box. And that's what we do here at the Lindner Center of Hope. Um, so if we're, if we're looking at a diag diagnosis, what, then what are effective treatments after um, you know what's wrong? Um, is it always medication or are there other things that, that are effective for the adolescent? I think uh, that, that's a really important uh, step to go through and, and thought exercise to go through with each family and each patient to figure out what is the best for them. So this is a point where it really does depend on what the mental illness is and also what the environment can support. So when I say that, um, there are some families where they could support getting their child to an intensive outpatient program every day. And... Um, and if you can do that, and, and if you were able to do that, that particular presentation of mental illness would be helped with that intervention. Um, but not every environment can support that. Not every family can support that, and not every mental illness will respond well to that. So the ranges of interventions for mental illness is really as broad as the diagnoses that exist. Um, for the most part, I would say that almost everybody is helped by some sort of therapeutic intervention. Therapy can take on all sorts of different modules. It can be everything from having someone that um, sort of checks in with you and makes sure that you're getting up and doing what you're supposed to do, someone that, vent, that you can vent to and your parents are getting on your nerves, to someone that does more insight-oriented work and helps you get into what's going on inside your head. 
Um, medications as well can um, take on a lot of different forms from a medicine that you might use just as needed for when things feel very overwhelming to something that you might need every day. Um, I think that another important thing to think about when we're talking to adolescents, because the social atmosphere is so important to them, are uh, group therapies, and oftentimes um, when it comes to rehab options, um, we're talking about a peer-supported environment. So um, talking about um, Alateine or looking at um, programs where you have a group of adolescents getting together and supporting each other in wellness is um, an important part of mental health treatment. And um, before we uh, close, I think it's really important. How could people get a hold of you or um, find out more about the Lindner Center of Hope? Absolutely, yeah. So um, you can call us here. We're in Mason, Ohio, which is outside of Cincinnati. Um, our main switchboard number is 513-285-9082. And you can also look us up online. It's at the lindnercenterofhope.org. And we have a great website that explains all of our different programs that we have here. Um, we have programs for substance use. We do ECT and TMS. Um, and we have a really wonderful diagnostic program for both adolescents and adults. I mean, to kind of just wrap it up a little bit, I, one of the things that um, I don't know whether it's a myth or not, but it seems to yeah. be true in my experience is that when someone starts, like, becomes mentally ill or they um, start using substances and they start abusing substances, then adolescents, the developmental um, stages kind of stop. Mm-hmm. And then as they enter into recovery, that work still needs to get done. Um, did you ever, have you ever heard that or do you ever see that? I have heard that, Mary, and I absolutely do see it. I think we can, so if we think of, of substance use as something that does not allow for any of these developmental tasks that we want our children to go through, um, it absolutely uh, puts a roadblock in the way of development. And part of the work of recovery is getting back on the developmental track. And sometimes that means going through things that other people went through 10 years ago. But now you have to work through, you know, your own uh, developing critical thinking skills or um, developing your identity. And it it really is an important part of um, understanding mental illness because uh, when we think about substance use and we think about how it often comes on in early adolescence, basically we're saying then that someone hasn't had that eight years that their peers had to go through all of these stages and try out these risks and behave like a child or an adolescent. And so they start to do it as an adult, and that's a really tough thing for other adults to tolerate. And it's an important part of their recovery um, in order to get back on track and, and get up to the developmental age that they want to be at. Does the same thing happen with um, severe mental illness as well that occurs in early adolescence? Um, you know, I think it's to a less extent um, because of the way that um, oftentimes development can proceed um, somewhat in, in the background of mental illness. It certainly, different mental illnesses can affect development. Um, attention disorders tend to really abrogate development and, and take it off course a little bit. Um, but it seems like like substance abuse is a bit more... Uh, a more of a, a real, like a hard stop when it comes to development. And, you know, I, I think that there's something interesting about the way that trauma and substance use and severe emotional distress are all 
um, connected. Trauma is something else that really takes development off course. And so um, when we think about just substance use as being its own kind of trauma, its own kind of way of um, getting off of the main path of life that uh, really does not allow for healthy development. So if, if um, just in closing, is there one promising um, treatment or diagnostic um, testing that is on the horizon that, uh, that you feel excited about or? Absolutely. Well, I, I, I get excited about a lot of things, Mary. Um, but I would say that I'm, I'm really excited about the um, genotyping uh, research that we're doing right now, which is where we are learning more about our body's own physiology and how we can use medications that are best suited for each one of us. So at the Linder Center, we do something called gene site testing, which is where we look at um, the way that each person's body processes the medications we use for mental illness, and then we help them choose a medication that's more likely to be effective. Um, and I think that that technology is, again, in, in its infancy, and it is going to just continue to explode um, and let us know more about interventions in terms of medications, as well as help us understand some of the underpinnings of why certain people are affected by mental illness in a certain way. Thank you so much for spending this hour with us. It's been fascinating, and um, it's always great to um, understand the adolescent mind because it completely baffles me. But, <laughs> but thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Mary. It's been really lovely. Have a great week, everyone. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.